Uh, but let's jump into the world of Elon Musk. And before you roll your eyes or sigh or do whatever it is that many people do when we talk about Elon Musk, I just want to set out my stall because I think it's important not to dismiss this week's activities in particular as yet another Elonism. There's been a lot that we haven't spoken about because it has seemed frivolous and so on. But this week, yet again, it was, I suppose, crystallized in my mind that since his takeover of the company, we've seen his actions impact people, media, politics and the wider society. This week, he spoke to BBC reporter James Clayton in a wide ranging interview and we gained a bit of insight into Musk's thinking and approach to certain decisions over the last few months. Here is Mr. Musk explaining how the business only had four months to live when he came on board. In, in rough numbers, a revenue dropped from four and a half billion to three. Um, uh, and... Um, Expenses went from four and a half to six, creating a three billion dollar negative cash flow situation, um, and Twitter having a billion dollars in the bank. That's four months to live. So unless drastic action was taken immediately, this company is going to die and be owned well, by the banks. Let, let's talk about that drastic action because almost immediately um, you sacked a lot of Twitter workers. Um, yeah, and, and, and look, I, I spoke to them. It was very easy to speak to them. Uh, when it happened. And, and, and the way they said, mm-hmm. pretty much everyone said, is, is that it felt quite haphazard. It was. And it felt a little bit uncaring. Do you, do you, do uh, you, do I wouldn't you... say uncaring. The, 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 you know, the issue is like, uh, the, the company's either gonna go bankrupt, uh, or if, if we do not cut costs immediately. Um, this is not a, a caring, uncaring situation. It's like, if the whole ship sinks, then nobody's gonna drop. Right. Yeah. But, but, a lot of people just lost their jobs like that, um, and 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 the, they weren't. Well, what, they didn't what, even know they would. They would, they'd lost their jobs often. They just okay. were just. They were just so frozen out of you, their accounts. What would you do? Well, you might want to give someone some notice. I mean, you might. It's, by the way, I, I'm not running Twitter, but, I know, but this is this is the criticism, and this is what actual. This is what I staff members but, say. A but, little bit of notice, uh, you know. No, I understand. You have four months to live. 120 days. In 120 days, you're dead. So how? So what do you want to do? How much are you worth? I don't know. But you, I mean, we're talking about around the $200 billion mark. I mean, it's not no. quite, you're framing it in, in a way that, that, you know, that it had a, had a few months to live. You're quite a rich man. Um, I sold a, a lot of Tesla stock to close this deal. I did not want to sell the Tesla stock. That was Elon Musk speaking to the BBC earlier this week. I'm joined now by Stephen O'Leary of Olitico. Stephen, I spoke to you way back when it looked like Musk might buy Twitter, although he could still back out. Obviously, since then, we've had the sale, we've had job cuts, we've had policy changes, we've had more job cuts, we've had paid verification, we've had account labels and even a dog as the logo. Uh, before we jump into the happenings of this week, just give me your overall sense of the last few months. I do remember our conversation about this, and I do actually remember my prediction as well. And it's probably a lesson in making sure that you don't go too strong on what you predict will happen, because people are hard to predict. And Musk is definitely very hard to predict. We thought at the time that really the Tesla situation would ensure that he treated Twitter with a little bit of care and that he couldn't go absolutely all out on it. 
because the potential damage to Tesla and Tesla's reputation was too high and that ultimately that would uh, that would shape his behavior. That hasn't really transpired. Now, there is an argument that the kind of gung-ho, mass layoff, huge change approach that really was the hallmark of his first weeks and months in the business has slowed down. Mm-hmm. But as we've seen in the last couple of weeks and even the last couple of days, he's still very much in control. And despite changes in management and structure, if he wants to change something within Twitter, at the moment, it feels he can do it with minutes notice. And that leads to some erratic decision making. Yeah. And whatever about him as a leader, Twitter as a platform is suffering the consequences. And there are so many businesses whose KPIs or whose business models, entire business models revolve around Twitter. So if a person who's eccentric and who has thoughts and chats with people online and then takes knee-jerk reactions on the back of those can make alterations to a platform that we're using as key drivers for our businesses. I, I mean, it's not a good situation for anybody. It's not good, no. And it makes planning hard without question. So anyone who is heavily reliant on Twitter as a network definitely has a huge degree of uncertainty at the moment because really from week to week, from day to day, from hour to hour, in some situations, things can change. But the network has survived. And there were a lot of kind of people who speculated at the very start of this that potentially Twitter wouldn't last, maybe wouldn't last the end of the week or the end of the month back in 2022. And yet it has. And in fact, Based on advertising, we haven't seen the mass exodus of advertisers that was also feared or the mass exodus of users. Now, look, there have been some high profile accounts that have decided to leave the network or the platform. But by and large, if you look at Twitter today, for all the verification and the blue tick and the different models and the changes, really, Twitter is pretty much the same as it was a year ago in lots of cases. So there has been some change. And we certainly know that the model is changing. And obviously, there has been a huge cost-cutting exercise undertaken. And possibly the effects of that are a little bit more medium to long term. It's maybe a little bit too early to know really how that will actually play out. But for now, Twitter in lots of ways actually looks very similar to what it did a year ago. But I remember talking to you years ago now at this stage uh, when Hillary Clinton announced her candidacy in, in the presidency, right? She did that on Twitter, And it was before anywhere else. There wasn't a press briefing or anything like that. She announced it on Twitter. And that was seen as a huge move because although Obama had used Twitter so effectively during his campaign and his presidency, it was showing that maybe older demographics were understanding the value of this platform. And over time, it had been maybe not necessarily a trusted news source, but it was where people who are trusted went to share news and updates of relevance. The change that I've seen as a journalist on Twitter in recent times is that I believe nothing because there are verified accounts operating under names of influential people. But when you actually scratch the surface, they're not that actual person. They're verified because they paid eight dollars or whatever it is. The famous example that I cited a few weeks ago was Monica Lewinsky. So Monica Lewinsky, from her verified Twitter account, shared a screenshot of a man who's operating a verified account with the name Monica Lewinsky. And it's not that they have the same name, it's just that he's 
a shit stirrer for want of a better phrase. So th- that to me has been the biggest shift that although we were cautious before about believing what you read on Twitter, now even after I verify it on two sources, I'm looking for a third and fourth because I simply can't believe anything on the platform anymore. So I appreciate as a journalist the need to be really, really careful when it comes to using the platform. But the argument I would make is that that existed prior to Musk taking over. And look, there's no doubting the fact that people can now buy verification, that there are going to be examples when people claim to be one person and turn out to be somebody else. And it does get more complicated because those accounts can have a blue tick next to them. And it used to be the case previously that if you saw the blue tick, you could take a lot of um, comfort as a journalist or in other professions that the content you were consuming was from an official or um, an authority that that was who they purported to be. That has changed. However, those accounts that claim to be someone else and don't clearly display that they are a parody are that they are definitely not the person. So those accounts that are looking to kind of trick you and impersonate other accounts, they don't last long. Twitter does have a system to stop that. And whatever about the Monica Lewinsky example, when the verification process launched initially, there were some high profile US companies who got impersonated. And actually some of the commentary that came out of accounts um, that claimed to be these companies actually affected market and share prices. And that was a really, really serious um, result. So Twitter has seen this. It would appear it has learned from some of its early mistakes. Um, And when I say early mistakes, I mean early muskier mistakes. And it is making changes. But I do think that the onus will always be on the media in particular to treat it very carefully. I certainly don't think, though, that people in positions of power are going to stop using it because the reality is there isn't another network that deals with breaking news in the way that Twitter does. Like, just think about the networks that exist as competitors, right? It's not Facebook. It's not Instagram. It's not TikTok. It's not LinkedIn. It's not YouTube. There isn't another network that comes close to being the place everybody goes when something happens live. And it's not just the news, right? So if you're a golf fan and you were following the Masters, you didn't go to any of those other social networks to see how everyone was reacting to McElroy's performance or Ram winning. You went to Twitter because that's where the reaction was occurring. Or you take pop culture. So without any spoilers, and I'll say nothing specific, but if you follow Succession, mm-hmm. very, very interesting episode uh, mm-hmm. released this week. Lots of conversation that occurred on the back of it. But the spike in conversation took place on Twitter. There wasn't really conversation on Instagram. It didn't really get talked about on Facebook in the same way. Certainly there was clips shared on TikTok, but that's really, really different. The absolute spike as essentially an entire market sat down to watch a TV program at the same time. That all happened on Twitter. And the power, that power that the network holds, in a way, is much bigger than Musk. It's much bigger than how the organization is run. So if they can keep the lights on and they can ensure that the platform actually stands up, I don't see someone else or another network stepping in and and really replicating that experience in any meaningful way. Yeah, I've seen a number of people share, you know, Substack, potentially Substack Notes as being an alternative or maybe Meta will enter the fray with something Twitter-esque. But I guess the thing that I'm concerned about is like we already are dealing with a hell of a lot of misinformation and disinformation and so on. And, 
you know, obviously it's my job and I wouldn't be good at my job if I didn't look to verify information, if I just ran with every tweet with a tick that I, I, I saw. But the fear factor is, you know, the average individual who would have liked to think themselves being up on current affairs because they read Twitter or they follow influential journalists and so on. I do think the level of noise has gone through the roof and I think it's become harder for people to use or to identify legitimate sources of information versus illegitimate. Um, And I just wonder what the end game here is in terms of that fake news thing that we're all fed up talking about. So I agree. Uh, Misinformation and disinformation is a massive problem, not just on social networks, but more broadly. Um, And social networks are fairly central to it. Certainly they're central to the dissemination of that information. So actually spreading it and things going viral. And it's not helped when a system that had been used to provide an element of security, of safety, of verification is essentially altered massively, which is the step that, that Twitter took when it came to selling verification essentially to, to its users. So that does make things more difficult and it adds to the challenges that exist in, in tackling misinformation and disinformation. But we need to be careful too to remember that this is not unique to Twitter in any way. Um, there is a huge amount of conversation at the moment in relation to TikTok and its ownership and how it promotes content because you've got to remember that disinformation and misinformation is to do with accounts that impersonate other accounts. That's part of it without question, but also it's down to how the networks decide to promote mm-hmm. or boost or show content to audiences and the routes that they can take those audiences on. And we're all, some are very aware of the stickiness of TikTok as a network, for example, and how that algorithm works and how you can find yourself going down a rabbit hole really quickly because it understands your behavior um, and can find essentially content that it knows you're going to, to stop and watch. That's just one other example of a social network that has come into question. You know, more broadly, um, ChatGPT and AI and other kind of topics at the moment are bringing up these huge questions for users around information and algorithms and how it's presented and what we can trust and what we can't. I mean, when ChatGPT launched, there was loads of excitement. You could ask it anything and it had the answer essentially in ways that almost Google didn't have. This was this amazing piece of tech. And it is, and it has great potential, but equally we learned very quickly that actually it kind of just makes things up a little bit. It guesses, there's a lot of guesswork that goes in. And so I think what this all comes back to is there's a greater onus now on individual users to educate themselves on how to look out for misinformation and disinformation and how to essentially figure out where the truth lies And probably really brings us back to more traditional media. It brings us to journalists. It brings us to reputable news organizations and the role they play and how central they've become. Because if you struggle to trust content that you see on a social network and you struggle maybe to trust content you see more broadly on the internet, well, we do know that the purveyors of truth and those who have to stand up for it are journalists and traditional media. So in a way, despite all these changes we're seeing, there's probably never been a time when that type of media, traditional media, has been more important. Yeah, that is such an interesting point. And I suppose 
and I completely take the point of this isn't just a Twitter problem. And, you know, before Musk entered the equation here, there were hearings and antitrust hearings and a whole host of investigations going on into the behaviours of different social media platforms. But just to, to bring it back to Twitter for a minute, because I was following with interest the fallout between Musk, Twitter and NPR. Um, so for those who don't know, NPR, National Public Radio in the US, they do a whole host of excellent content. Um, you may have watched one of their Tiny Desk concerts. Harry Styles did one, for example. So I'm sure your teenagers know that. But they do great stuff. And they were given a label under the new regime of Musk that they didn't like on Twitter. They were saying it was damaging and it called into question their independence. Uh, so they've decided to leave the platform. Uh, what did you make of this back and forth and was either party in the right here? This was really interesting to watch. Your word regime is really interesting here too because that's actually quite central to a lot of this uh, this specific conversation. So again, I think in, in terms of like brief background here, this this kind of escalated very, very quickly as a story. It began with essentially NPR being labeled state-affiliated media. And the language here is really important because state-affiliated media is a label that Twitter has used historically for autocratic regimes. Mm -hmm. um, so think Russia, think China, where essentially the government plays this really central role in deciding what state-affiliated media publishes. So a good way of identifying this type of content content is that it's never critical of the government. So the government and their policies are never questioned um, on these outlets. There's never any criticism of key government or key individuals. And it's, you know, it's sometimes labeled propaganda. So Musk was challenged um, for putting this label um, by NPR. And so he, he said, OK, I'll change it. And very quickly changed it to government funded media. Um, which NPR weren't really happy with either and decided, no, that's not what we want to be labeled as. That's not fair that only 1% of our funding comes from federal sources um, and that we're a private nonprofit, we're independent. Um, we And I, again, like they constantly criticize the government in the US. So the idea that the, the government has some sort of control over NPR is really hard to stand up. If you look at the vast majority of their reporting, which calls into question lots of things that the government does. So then it kind of escalated a little further and the BBC got involved. And so Musk said, OK, I'll call you publicly funded media because there's a license fee. And if you go to the BBC Twitter account now, you go to NPR, you'll see government funded media. You go to the BBC, you'll see publicly funded media. But where this gets really complicated is NPR has 52 official accounts on Twitter. So it has their main account, but then it has 51 others for all the various politics, music, different divisions that are involved. The only one that's got government funded media on it is their main account. Similarly for the BBC, their main account actually doesn't have that many followers, relatively. So I think I checked this morning and it was 2.2 million is the follower count that the BBC account has. And underneath it, it says publicly funded media. But if you go to the BBC breaking news account, which has got 52 million followers, so like 50 million more, there's no label. Mm. So... Another part of this is just the way it's applied. You go to RTE, there's no label, despite the fact that there being a license fee uh, involved. So, you know, what we often see with this is that Musk can bring a level of pettiness when it comes to the way in which decisions are taken, or certainly it has a strong appearance of pettiness. 
And that's what it feels like happened here, uh, that this decision was taken on a bit of a whim and done purposely to annoy a certain cohort of users, our demographic, our audience. It had the desired effect. NPR have left Twitter. Uh, whether that's going to be permanent or not, yeah, I suppose we're yet to find out. But for 24 hours, they haven't been there. And, you know, in interviews that they gave on their own uh, their own network, they talked about the importance of the other networks they're involved in. So Facebook being a key driver, YouTube, TikTok, uh, and actually making claims that Twitter was driving a relatively small percentage of traffic um, to their website and to their, their stations. So, look, it's clear there's a strong disagreement here. Um, there's a question as to how important that label is. It goes back to integrity though, right? And it goes back to transparency and like if you're going to start putting labels on things, there has to be a clarity as to why one thing is one thing and another thing is that other thing. And I think that the examples that you just listed there between the BBC, RTE and so on, it just feels like it's being made up on the spot. And that all feeds into that uncertainty, that level of distrust and, you know, if I was a social media manager right now, I'd be thinking, oh, hang on a second, why like, are we placing too much value on this one source? Yes, we have lots of followers, but with all the changes that are going on with the algorithm, with, you know, people who pay for a blue tick getting boosted above people who don't pay for the blue tick, it just feels like a muddy puddle, as Peppa Pig would say. And it's not sure, I'm not sure it's one that I want to jump in anymore. Yeah, Peppa is always a good person to come back mm. to uh, in these situations for uh, for reference points. The puddle could not be any muddier. Um, and look, there's no, there again, there's no doubting. All the evidence shows that Musk is making this up as he goes along to an extent. And he's he said this, you know, they want to move fast and break things. This, uh, this idea, and we, we see this, and that line has been used repeatedly by entrepreneurs uh, in the past, that this is how you... You affect change. And Twitter was long criticized for moving at a glacial speed when it mm-hmm. came to making any changes on the network in the past. Now, this is clearly an overcorrection in terms of how fast things change. And look, there have been high profile things that have gone wrong. Musk does need the network to work. So he talked in the interviews with NPR and BBC recently about the fact that he expects uh, the company to be cash flow positive and to be break even in terms of revenue um, through this quarter. Um, which is interesting, um, you know, and, and probably important to the long term viability of the network. So it can't continue to be an absolute loss maker. Um, so there are interesting things happening there at the moment. There is no doubt that all of this does feed into uncertainty. What I would say about the the social media manager and maybe their questions as to whether or not they should be using the network. And obviously we have a bias here because we deal in data all day, every day. But our job is to look at how content performs on Twitter, on Facebook, on TikTok, LinkedIn, YouTube, right across the board, and also to listen to how the public talk and engage in those networks. And one thing that our data would suggest, looking at the broader spectrum of clients we work with is, engagement is still high on the network. People are still consuming a lot of content on the network. People are still very active on the network. There have been changes, but there are constantly changes in user behavior. So I think, If you're trying to make a business decision here around whether or not you should remain active on the platform, it needs to come down to measuring the effectiveness of the content you're publishing and whether that's doing a job for you, whatever that job may be. And the one thing is there is great data. There's great analytics. You can gain great insights. 
And that tells you how you're doing. But the one other major advantage Twitter has is that real-time pulse of how country, a cohort of fans, a community, a group feel. And it gives you that pulse like really no other network does. Nothing else comes close. And so for all its challenges, for all its problems, for all the things that Musk is breaking at the moment, I really find it hard, provided they can keep the lights on and make the business case work, to see Twitter going anywhere or any real significant um, competitor in the space of real-time breaking news and real-time events and sport and current entertainment really emerging. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot now. So we made predictions last time. Uh, next time we talk, we'll book it in right now. Uh, will Musk still be in charge and will have will things have settled? I think Musk will have appointed a more formal management team by the time we next talk. Let's say we're going to talk in six months' time. I think there will be a more formal management structure at that at that point. I think Twitter will be in a good place by then. Um, certainly that would be my hope. I, I I see a lot of the good in the network. I see a lot of the things that work well. We're absolutely aware of the disinformation and the misinformation and the harm, but we also see the incredible good, its ability to bring communities together um, and the positive effect that that can have. So I really hope it does um, continue and thrive. But I think my gut would say that within the next six months, the other businesses, whether that's SpaceX or Tesla or others that Musk is involved in, and particularly the rapidly evolving AI landscape. Mm. I think I would be really surprised given how ChatGPT and others have started to become a massive talking point and, and really appearing to become central to an awful lot of what we're going to do over the next couple of years. I would be really, really surprised if we didn't see Musk taking a fairly significant position on that industry in the next six to 12 months. So he'll have a new toy, basically. Yeah, and a toy that works with a lot of his other toys, right? Yeah. So what we don't know is what role does, you know, the large language model play in a social network? How can that be integrated into Twitter? What does that make the network look like? How does that play or does it play any role in terms of Tesla or SpaceX? You know, there's so much happening, so much change in that space, and it is rapidly evolving to the point that there are new companies coming out by the dozen every day at the moment, showcasing what this type of computing power and this type of artificial intelligence can do. I think it's, you know, we don't really know what's coming six weeks down the road, never mind six months. But as I say, from, from all of our experience of Musk to date and where he's wanted to be at the forefront of you know, electric cars, of space, of social networks. I, I just don't see a way that he's not looking at artificial intelligence at the moment and the changes we've seen brought about from ChatGPT and others in the last kind of six months and saying to himself, that's where I need to be and that's where I want to be. Okay, I'm going to talk to you in October. We're going to play this interview back. We'll do a, we'll do a listening party and we'll see uh, what happens. Uh, but for the moment, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk. Pleasure, Jess. 